If event X has to happen, or else everyone on planet Earth dies, well, you probably want to know what X is, right? Even if it already happened and we survived it, you'd want to do a debrief either to learn from it or just out of curiosity. Okay, not to get religious on you, but if we're asserting that event X is the life of Jesus Christ, it immediately raises the questions, what was Jesus doing that could have possibly been important enough to save the whole world? And how did it happen? We get what? 170 pages about his entire life in the New Testament. But really, that's just the same story told four different ways. So you end up with like 40 pages of coverage for saving the world. That's it. And for a lot of the time in there, he's just giving speeches and walking from place to place. Yes, he did extraordinary healings of a handful of people, and he made a batch of wine really quickly. But does that really move the needle in the grand scheme of things? Isn't there more to the story? What if we all already know more to the story? We just didn't realize it was connected. Abraham and Sarah traveling to Egypt. Isaac marrying Rebecca, Jacob, Joseph. Could these seemingly unconnected biblical stories of the family history of a group traveling around the Middle East actually be the reveal of the details of the processes that Jesus was going through in this most important event? But how would something that strange sounding even work? Well, it has to do, first of all, with layers of meaning. Hey everybody, welcome to Swedenborg in Life. Today we're going to be talking about the psychological and spiritual development of Jesus Christ. But we're not only going to be doing that, we're going to be looking at how the stories in the Old Testament give you the insight to understand things mm. like that development. So that's the sound of everyone clicking away from this video. <laughs> My name is Curtis <laughs> Childs and I'll be your host with me as always, Dr. Jonathan Rose. Thanks so much <laughs> hey, for hanging out. So I want to start by saying a lot of people have talked about Jesus Christ throughout history, and there's a lot of different perspectives on him. And where we start in this show is Swedenborg's perspective that Jesus is the divine soul incarnated in a human form. And the setting is that he needs to be what Swedenborg calls glorified in order to, as we alluded to in the intro, save the entire human race. Mm. So what does that mean? You couldn't have had a grander mission than right. that, could you? It's pretty, pretty admirable. Part of what Swedenborg says is that really total damnation was threatening, which would have meant it was impossible to go to heaven anymore. And so part of it was that Jesus needed to come down in order just to have access. God was so far from hell that you couldn't get the two together, you know, but Jesus coming down in human form, he could have access. And by living his life the way that he did, he could also show us the path. So it sort of served those, that double function. And we could talk for a whole show about that, but we already did. Oh. We did a show called Why Jesus Was Born, which talks about right. that in more detail. But if you'll accept that as a premise, we need to have that intact to talk about what we're going to talk about next. We also need to have this intact, that Jesus needed to unite the, the human and the divine. That's what, that's what Jesus Christ was. But you notice that if I had to unite the human and divine, I would say, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zap down and I'm going to be 40 feet tall and I'm going to be able to shoot out airplanes right. out of my fingers. Right. But he shows up as a little teeny baby and then becomes a little toddler and goes through the same little, very mysterious process that we do. Yeah. That's because Jesus is 
following the divine design ah. and had to, and we could talk about that. And there's a reason why we go through being babies and growing Wouldn't up. Wouldn't that be a good show? We already did yeah. that show as well. Oh. It's why was, did Jesus well, come to earth as a baby? That. Yeah. So we're trying to show, we've talked about this stuff. There's good reasoning and logic behind it. If you'll accept those two as our foundation, now we can get to the processes in Jesus's life. So if he's here, he's got this mission, he's got this way he's got to progress. What was going on behind the scenes? What made up his life and his work? Mm. That uniting of the divine and the human actually had multiple levels to it. Like there were different levels to the divine part, different levels to the human part, and there was a complex process that went on. And so to me, one of the most astounding things that Swedenborg says is that Jesus was not just walking around and teaching and healing, but the whole time he was going through this inward psychological process that was a vital piece of it, and hardly anybody knows anything about that. And he had to connect these levels together that we have, and this just looks like a modest little diagram, that's not a big deal, but according to Swedenborg, this was a huge job, mm. and it was really intense that this was the grandest mission that had ever been attempted, we don't hear anything about it, really. Mm. The, the only spiritual trials you seem to come across in the Bible, I mean, the main one being the temptation in the wilderness, his last quote right. on the cross, he had his last That's right. moment of doubt. Um, and those, you know, you could talk about those, and we did. We did a show about those as well, the spiritual battles of Jesus Christ and the importance of those moments. But was that really it? Why, why live the whole 33 years? What was going on all the rest of that time? Wasn't there something that, that went on in his youth what was going on in young adulthood and so on. Right, right. So this is what Swedenborg has to say. Secrets of Heaven, what was revealed, meaning these crises we just talked about, seems... And particularly that interaction with the, the temptation in the wilderness. That's right. With, with Satan comes and tests him and everything. He says here, it seems so mild that it hardly amounts to anything. As far as the literal story goes, to speak and answer in that way is no trial. Yes. <laughs> do you want to do this? You're sweating? No, uh, I don't. No, thanks. That. I'd rather not. The fact is, though, that he was tested more severely than any human mind could ever grasp or believe. Mm. And that begs the question, why, two questions, you know, why, why don't we know more about it? But also, why would he have to go through that? And I love Swedenborg's answer, which is it has to do with the nature of your love. If you have a small amount of love, then you get tested a little bit. Mm. If you have infinite love, then you go through an infinitely difficult test. Swedenborg says this about it. All trials target the love we feel. That's what they target. The severity of the trial matches the nobility of the love. That's sort of your, what you care about is your vulnerability to something like hell. Yes, that's right. If love is not the target, there's no trial. If it's something you don't care about, sure. then you're not that engaged. To destroy a person's love is to destroy the core of that person's life, since love is life. The Lord's life was love for the whole human race, a love so great and good that it was pure, unalloyed love. He allowed this life of his to be attacked continuously from the dawn of his youth until his final moments in the world. In short, the Lord was attacked by all the hells from early in his youth up to the very end of his life in the world. While he was continually, he wasn't just sort of taking it on the chin, mm. he was continually routing, subduing, and vanquishing them. This he did purely out of love for the entire human race. There was no ego in it or whatever. Sure. No desire for money, and, right? Since his love was not human but divine, and the greater the love, the harder the struggle, you can see 
how fierce his battles were and how savage on the part of the hells. There was really nothing holding them back. I mean, it's this amazingly dramatic story, and it's powerful and moving, but I do feel like if I was in some New Testament class and we were supposed to read this, the life of Jesus and give a report on it, and Swedenborg stood up and gave that report, I would, oh, I think I read the wrong book. I don't, I didn't see that what, in there. He talked to some people, he did some healing, you know. Yeah, so how, see does, how does Swedenborg know all this? Well, he says it connects to the inner meaning of the Old Testament. The Old Testament. He writes, from his early youth up to the last hour of his life in the world, the Lord's life was one continuous struggle and one continuous victory. As you just asserted, as many passages in the Old Testament word indicate. Whoa. Now, I've read the Old Testament, and I didn't read anything about these intense struggles between Jesus Christ and hell. Yeah, it, it seemed like the Old Testament was written before he was even born, so yeah. like he's not a character in there. Like, there's debate as to whether he's even integrated in with that story at all, whether you should attack the New Testament on the Old Testament. But Swedenborg is saying that if you know how to read some, some way, you can read into these stories to get mm. at these inner processes of Jesus. But how would that work? Yes, a related concept is Swedenborg's Point that scripture has not just this outward meaning that you contact, you know, the literal meaning, but it has not just one, but several layers of inner meaning. And understanding a little more about those layers is where you find this great stuff encoded. I just love the idea of being able to tell what Jesus was going through inwardly from looking at this material, this abundant material, thousands of pages that we have in the Old Testament. So of course our thesis for this whole show rests on that mechanism you just described. So would you mind saying a little bit more about that? Okay, here goes nothing. So how do we see the psychology of Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, Swedenborg says, you know, all you have to do is look at every word, pay very close attention to what is literally being said in Scripture, and then don't think about that. Think about something else. You're supposed to be thinking about something that's deeper, symbolically lying behind those words and images and the emotions and things that are going on in the story. This is how Swedenborg puts it in Secrets of Heaven 1405. The nature of the inner meaning requires that each and every particular be understood separately from the literal meaning, as if the literal meaning did not exist weird. The soul and life of the word is in the inner meaning, and it does not reveal itself unless the literal meaning vanishes, so to speak. That is how angels, enabled by the Lord, perceive the word when we on earth are reading it. And Swedenborg says that there's not just sort of one layer to that inner meaning. There are multiple layers, and they have different topics or focuses there's an outermost layer that's just the literal meaning, and that is uh, what you encounter as soon as you start to read the text. But just behind that is what he calls the natural meaning, which has to do with the spiritual history of the human race over time. And then what could be behind that? Oh, well, then you have the spiritual, and the spiritual is all about what we go through as we're reborn, our process, and then there's something even deeper than that, and this is the one that particularly interests us in this show, is the heavenly level that has to do with Jesus's process, and that's where you get this good stuff about what Jesus was going through. This is what reveals it to us. Now, where does Swedenborg write about this? Well, he writes about it in a book called Secrets of Heaven, or in, it used to have the Latin title of Arcana Celestia, Heavenly Secrets. 
Secrets of Heaven. And Swedenborg writes about this in there. It was his first major theological work, and in it he carefully goes through Genesis and Exodus, explaining in each word how these different layers of meaning play out. And so let me give you a little tutorial. If you try to dive into that work, it can be a little confusing to people sometimes, and it seems a little repetitive because it has these different layers to it. First of all, Swedenborg will just straight up quote the chapter from the Bible. But then he's got a summary, and I find these very valuable because you can just get a quick thumbnail of what's going on in the inner meaning. And often if you can hold that in mind, it helps you once you get lost in the forest of the details. And then he takes you through verse by verse, even almost word by word sometimes, going into what's going on in the inner meaning. And for kind of a breather at the end of all that, he'll give you a spiritual story, some, some anecdote about the spiritual world, experiences that he was having. And then you go into the next chapter and the cycle starts again. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Swedenborg says that it's mostly focused on the first two of those levels of meaning we just talked about. In other words, what was going on spiritually in the history of the human race and what's going on in our hearts and minds as we go through our regeneration process. And there's a distinct shift when you get to uh, chapter 12. It's very interesting. Swedenborg says that there you really shift into the Lord's inner process. And that's where you start to learn about his childhood and what was going on. And that continues pretty consistently through to Genesis chapter 50, right through the end of Genesis there. And this coincides with a shift, Swedenborg says, in even the nature of the text. He says the nature of the text of Genesis is that there's a couple of different types of material in there. And those first chapters were actually more almost fabricated, you could say, to accord with correspondences, whereas you get the beginning of real history in chapter 12. So it's interesting that that shift takes place there. This is how he describes it in 67, 1403. From the first chapter of Genesis up to this point, he's right at that point in the text, or rather up to Eber, who's a character who comes in there. The story elements were not true history, but were made up. Now, I know that's going to shock some people because they think that creation literally happened the way it's described. But he's, no, that, that's about correspondences about the human heart and so on. And on an inner level, they symbolized heavenly and spiritual matters. In the current chapter, and in those to come, the narrative details are not made up, but are truly historical details. They actually happen as described. On a deeper level, they too symbolize heavenly and spiritual matters. You might think, oh, well, the text shifted away from a correspondential treatment. Maybe it doesn't have that same level of meaning anymore. Oh, no, it still does. They too, even though it truly happened that way, they too symbolize heavenly and spiritual matters as anyone can see, interesting argument, simply by considering that it is the Lord's Word. That's quite a unique perspective. And so let's hear a little more about that psychological journey. At chapter 12 in Genesis, Swedenborg sees allegory turn into history. He writes, in these genuinely historical parts, every single statement and word symbolizes something radically different in the inner meaning than in the literal meaning, but the historical elements themselves are representative. So even though it's stuff that really happened, it still can be this carrier 
for the internal sense. And Swedenborg lays out these four major phases of the Lord's internal or spiritual development that he says line up with the story of the patriarchs. He writes, Abram, the first to be chronicled, broadly represents the Lord and more narrowly represents the heavenly self. Isaac, who comes next, likewise represents the Lord generally, but the spiritual self specifically. Jacob, too, represents the Lord generally, and specifically he represents the earthly self. So the three of them represent properties of the Lord, of his kingdom, and of the church. He doesn't mention Joseph there, but the Joseph stories follow Jacob, and they are the fourth phase. Remember, though, we talked about God following the same progression that we all follow. Swedenborg writes, The Lord was born the same as any other human, so he also advanced from a murky state to one of greater clarity. So you have these four different phases that correspond to many different layers of meaning. At first you have the progression of the patriarchs, as we said, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But those correspond to the levels of Jesus' spirit, the heavenly, the spiritual, the earthly, and then them all united. Going even further, there's a focus to each one of these stages. The first stage primarily seems to be about love, then we go to wisdom, then to action, and then to usefulness. But there's one more. In Jesus' lifetime, we can map these phases generally onto his childhood, youth, adulthood, and ministry. So you have all these things happening simultaneously. These phases are the process of glorification. This is uniting Jesus is human to his divine and divine to human. And it all happens in this very ordered, careful, structured way. And we've got this to fill out. These are the steps. We need to unite all these levels in order to get this process to go, in order to save the human race. So isn't that worth doing? What we're looking for is to be able to unite love and wisdom in each of these levels. The uniting of love and wisdom being this primal theme that runs through Swedenborg's works. And it's the way that God was going to come and save us all here. So for each phase that we go through, we're going to be looking at how do you unite love and wisdom in the different, these different levels of the mind. So the first task that we had was the top and the very bottom. So how do you unite love and wisdom in the innermost and outermost parts of God? And this is the Abraham phase, or what is told through the story of Abraham. And usually Swedenborg isn't this specific, but he does say that with Abraham, we do know that this phase was taking place when Jesus was a child. So even in childhood, he's doing this intense spiritual lifting. This was really his first calling and waking up from just being like maybe another kind of regular child into a spiritual life. So we're going to try to summarize this story in like three minutes for you. In these summaries, we tried to pull it all together in the best way possible. These are some of the references we use. It's complicated. We're doing our best to approximate it, but this is a great way to get the full picture. So what we're going to do here is have the story of the spiritual development of Jesus in childhood as told through Abraham. In the beginning, Jehovah calls Abram to leave his father's house. The call to leave Haran is an awakening to something higher in life, a stirring in the deepest parts of Jesus' soul. Abram is the divine love or will in the highest level of Jesus' mind. Sarai is the divine truth or the intellect on that same level. Lot is the outer self of this early state. And so Abram leaves with Sarai his wife and his brother's son Lot. Together they go to Canaan and we hear that the Canaanites were in the land. This symbolizes Jesus' recognition that there were hereditary evils in his human mind. In this early awakening and response to a higher calling, Jesus hungers for knowledge. There is a famine in the land. Abram seeks food in Egypt. 
Abram going to Egypt is a picture of Jesus gathering knowledge of religious truth from the Hebrew scriptures to make sense of the stirring in his soul. Although his soul was divine love and divine truth, his human needed vessels for this love and wisdom to flow into. Gathering knowledge, Abram and Sarai's stay in Egypt gave him these vessels. But there comes the issue of Abram fearing that Pharaoh may kill him so Pharaoh can take Sarai for himself. To protect his life, Abram tells Sarai to say she's his sister and Sarai is taken, as Abram predicted. This is an image of Jesus falling into a state of being interested in studying things just for the sake of building up knowledge, which threatens to disconnect truth from its purpose of love and service. Sarai, divine truth, needs to be restored to Abram, divine love. Jesus resists the inclination to study truth simply for knowledge and enters into a state of greater light and wisdom. Sarai is acknowledged as the wife she really is to Abram and they leave Egypt. Jesus now has a new discernment between worldly knowledge and true wisdom. This process leads him to not only understand but perceive that his inner self is distinct from his outer self. Once they've left Egypt, Lot and Abram must part ways. Lot, the outer self, settles in the lowlands and Abram, the inner self, in the highlands. The separation from Lot gives Jesus' inner self the necessary distance to engage in combat against the hereditary evils in his outer self. There is war between kings. Lot is taken captive. Jesus perceives in his inner self how vulnerable his outer self is to loving evil and thinking evil things are good. Jesus purifies his outer self of these evils and the misconceptions that lead to them. After a phase of spiritual struggle, after Abram battles the kings and frees Lot, Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram. There is consolation after temptation. The first stage of union between the human essence and the divine essence in Jesus has been achieved. So Jesus feels this calling towards something higher and then is able to upgrade these higher levels of his heart and mind through the study of sacred texts and he takes that and uses it to start to do battle with this evil that's in his outer self and attacking his outer self. And so there he's accomplishing this union in the first phase between the inner and the outer. We just gave you the summary. There's a lot more detail in Swedenborg and if you want to study it for yourself, Here's a handy reference chart of where the chapters in Genesis line up with Swedenborg's explanation in Secrets of Heaven. Pause this screen if you want to check it out more. Okay, we've got that buttoned up, but as you can see, there's more work to do here. These levels are united. We've got to get these ones in the same way. So as Jesus grows, his spiritual self has to find a way to get his budding rationality to start serving his higher goal. And this is the story of Isaac. So we saw what Abraham represented and contributed. Let's see where the story goes from here. Jehovah promised Abraham an heir. This is the promise of a rational mind that would be able to further the divine's purpose of uniting his human form and his divine soul. All the knowledge Jesus has gathered in the previous stage gives him the means of forming rationality. At first, rationality is born of worldly knowledge. Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, gives birth to Ishmael. Rationality is inherently inclined to think about spiritual things from a world-based perspective, rooted in appearances. The angel of the Lord prophesies that Ishmael will be like a wild, stubborn donkey with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. 
religious conviction, when processed through rationality in its first state, is inevitably unyielding and combative because it has not been united to goodness. Once rationality has been made a servant to spiritual truth, allowing for the inflow of love, it is represented by Isaac. There is a struggle Jesus has to undergo to transition from the first stage of rationality and be prepared for the second. Rationality at first thinks it's the source of truth, but it must come to learn that truth, in order to be really true, comes from love and serves love. Sarah is taken from Abraham again, this time by King Abimelech of Gerar. Through this process, Jesus learns that genuine truth transcends the appearances of the world, and so also the realm of rationality. The true role of rationality is to serve genuine truth with its bond to love. God tells Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham, and she is restored. Jesus' rationality is now ready to enter its second stage, and Isaac is born. But the work of uniting truth to love on this level is not over. The sacrifice of Isaac is another round of truth or the intellect on the spiritual level fully submitting itself to divine love. All of this is a process leading to the marriage of divine goodness and divine truth on the spiritual level of Jesus' mind. The achievement of that marriage is symbolized by the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. At this point, the glorification of Jesus has proceeded so far that his rationality has been made divine. Rebekah gives birth to Esau and Jacob. This represents the gradual preparation of the next level in Jesus, the natural level for union with the divine. So there we've got more struggle capturing and reclaiming. And when it's all said and done, we've got love and wisdom united in the spiritual and rational levels of Jesus' mind. Bam! Feels good, doesn't it? And that's, again, the summary. If you want to do your own reference, here's your handy-dandy, pausable screen. So with this newly disposed rational level, Jesus is ready and prepared for uniting the human and the divine on the natural levels of the mind. This is the story of Jacob. Let's see where we go from here. Jesus, from his divine soul working through his now divine rationality, perceived that of itself, the goodness on his natural level, represented by Esau, had been perverted by hereditary evils and could not receive divine love until it was reformed and reordered. Truth reforms, but Jesus perceived that his natural level would not accept genuine truth that was rooted in divine love. It would only accept ideas that had the appearance of truth, but were tethered to affections that were not actually good. Jacob, the second-born, represents this latter kind of truth. He is induced by his mother Rebekah, divine truth on the spiritual level, to dress up to look like Esau, the firstborn, in order to receive his father's blessing. Isaac does bless Jacob. Jesus recognizes how appearances of truth, Jacob posing as the firstborn, would need to be the central means of preparing his natural level for union with the divine. Esau is outraged and plans to kill Jacob. Rebekah learns of this and has Jacob flee to her brother Laban's, where he'll be safe. Jacob ends up spending 20 years with Laban. Appearances of truth will lead to genuine goodness eventually, but it takes a long time. Jacob's true love is Rachel, who represents a genuine love of truth for the sake of usefulness. 
Laban promises Rachel to Jacob, but after his service of seven years, Laban deceives Jacob and has him marry his older daughter, Leah, first. The natural self is initially interested in truth that looks to its own gain. These truths lay a necessary foundation for gradually shifting to a love for spiritual truth. After serving for another seven years, Jacob finally is able to marry Rachel. As the natural self undergoes its gradual reformation, the pleasures of self-love rooted in hell don't want to let go of their hold. Laban is unwilling to acknowledge that the flocks Jacob has amassed are really his. Eventually, the bonds of affection that hold the natural mind in self-focused states must be fully severed. Jacob decides to leave Laban and they make a clear boundary between each other. At this time, the natural self is able to acknowledge that all goodness and truth comes from the divine and isn't a product of its own effort. Jacob decides to return to his father's land. The natural level of Jesus' human mind is ready to serve and be united to the glorified rational level represented by Isaac. But first, Jacob and Esau must meet and be reconciled. The goodness and truth in the natural level must be joined together. In order for this to happen, truth which has served as the central means of reformation must recognize that love is its ultimate authority. Jacob humbles himself before Esau. Just before he returns to Esau, though, Jacob wrestles with an angel and gets a new name. This is a picture of how the subordination of truth to goodness does not come about without spiritual struggle. When Esau and Jacob finally meet, they embrace. Goodness and truth are now united on Jesus' natural level. Now here we see Jesus first having to wrangle the ego directly and placate it and then get it to behave, but he orchestrates the whole thing using the corrupt desires that are already in the lower self to end up with the uniting of love and wisdom, even on the natural level. That's the short story. If you want to check it out for yourself, you know the drill by now. Here's your screen. So we move now into the final phase. You may not have noticed it, but there is this little bubble in here, and that represents the tying together of everything. And this is the story of Joseph. So Israel to Joseph is this growing new will destined to rule, but getting there is not going to be easy. Joseph, as governor of Egypt, is Jesus' inner self active in a new will which allows for the alignment and connection of all the levels in Jesus' human mind. But Joseph has a difficult path he must tread to his final position as the respected governor of Egypt. These are the final stages Jesus needs to go through to be made divine. Jesus' inner self suffers intense spiritual struggles during this final stage. Joseph's brothers nearly kill him and then throw him in a pit. Joseph is then taken into slavery and finally is falsely accused and thrown into prison. Through these temptations, Jesus acquires spiritual foresight into how exactly he would fully glorify his human nature. Joseph, while in prison, interprets the dreams of the butler and the baker. The baker, in keeping with Joseph's interpretation, is condemned to death by Pharaoh. By this, Jesus understands that he needs to reject all inclinations of the old will. The butler, on the other hand, is restored to favor in Pharaoh's house. By this, Jesus learns to retain the sensual things of his outer self to serve the higher inner levels. By creating a new will in his mind, 
the divine will of Jesus' soul will have a seat and the means to bond with his outer self. Joseph becomes governor of Egypt and even rules over his own brothers. But his brothers don't know it's Joseph. Joseph's brothers represent all the elements of Jesus' outer self, except for Benjamin. Joseph longs to reveal his true identity to his brothers, whom he loves and forgives for the way they've treated him. But he requires that Benjamin be present before he'll reveal who he really is. Benjamin is a symbol of an essential part of the outer self that allows for the divine will flowing into the new will to communicate with it. With Benjamin present, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. The person of Jesus is now ready to be fully glorified and be one with his divine soul in body. Joseph calls for his father Jacob to come to him from Canaan. Jacob lives in the land of Egypt and the children of Israel flourish there. Jacob blesses his sons and dies. He is buried with his family in Canaan. Joseph's brothers are now afraid for their lives, fearing that with their father dead, Joseph will repay them for the wrongs they've done to him. But Joseph reassures his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. After living to see his children's children to the third generation, Joseph reaches the end of his life. Through Joseph's final words, the glorified Jesus promises hope and help for us in our spiritual lives through his death and resurrection, paving the way for our salvation. I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Here we are, the order of ruling has been totally inverted, the inner self has ascended, but the outer self hasn't been sent away to Alcatraz or something like that. It still has its place, and through all that arrangement, we get ourselves a complete chart, which feels great. The connection has been made. One last time, if you want to read more about something like this yourself, here's your screen. This is the full conjunction of everything, that you are in me and I am in you. So that was a lot, right? What do you say we just take a minute and process all this? So out of all the stuff we just have been through in this episode, I feel like the main takeaway, if we were to try to summarize it, is that within the person of Jesus, we had this divine humanity accomplished. And this showed all of us the divine human one, as well as laying out this path. And it was this complex maneuver where you had to tie together these disparate levels and get Mm. a unity out of it. Yeah, and I, I love that graphic. There's something it understates, frankly, which is that what you're talking about, the top half of the diagram is actually infinity itself. It's yeah. actually boundless in comparison with which the human part is tiny, infinitesimal. So the process of trying to weave those two things together is awesome and baffling. It's a good and trick. frankly, Swedenborg says a number of times in Secrets of Heaven, I know this is difficult. I, I know you probably can't understand this. Yeah. You know, I mean, he admits this is really the this is the 
kind of gold standard. You understand this, you've really got Christianity down. But even given all that, that there is this sprawling, incomprehensible, nebulous process, Swedenborg says you can divide it neatly into these concrete mm. phases that are represented by each of the patriarchs yeah. and that have their parallel in the, the stages of Jesus' spiritual development. So these biblical stories ap- actually help you anchor this infinity in a way. Yeah. But I have one little problem, my friend, which is that... Um, Just let me have it. Didn't we kind of advertise this show as talking about how the whole Old Testament, we kept saying the whole Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> well, all we're talking about is Genesis 12 to 50. What about the, is the rest about something else? Yeah. What about the rest of the Did Old we Testament? just run out of time or something? Well, in a way you could look at it as there's almost just one story. In, in the whole of Scripture. You think mm. about the seven days of creation, Swedenborg says that that actually contains all the divine mysteries within it. Oh. But then th- you, th- you get a, re- a deeper telling of the story as we move on. So we focused on the bulk of mm. Genesis. Here, that's telling you the full story. But then mm. everything that comes after that, all the battles and the tribulations and the rest of the Old Testament, tells you the full story. It's only in this retelling on grander and grander scales that you're able to get this Detail, level of detail oh. and to build that interpretation out indefinitely. I love that. The, like it makes me think of the Exodus story, this whole sweep about you're looking for your country. Yeah. You know, like they go sort of home into this land yeah. and then they have to drive out the enemies. And yeah, and all that's about what Jesus was, was going through. And on the title pages, on the back of the title pages of Swedenborg's first editions of Secrets of Heaven, he wrote a quote from Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. It's awesome. And I don't know why he put that there, but it seems to hint at the fact that even though you're reading a lot of stuff in there about what the Lord went through in his childhood and youth and so on, that is totally our story, added to us. This is a process that we go through too. This is the pattern of our regeneration. In fact, you could use this same kind of model to talk about the fact that, hey, we need to go through some kind of an awakening first. It calls to us, right? Something calls you out of the land where you were born and takes you into a different state. And then we have to develop rationality because if we don't develop rationality, we're not gonna be able to do the next step of repentance, looking at seeing, oh, this is good, this is evil, I can do self-examination now. And you can't do that uh, if you can't do that, you'll never get to the new will that wants to be created where you get a, you get a heart a flesh replacing that heart of stone. This is like a field guide for all of us as we make our journey. And really, that's why the Lord would do something like this in the first place. God is not interested in doing stuff for himself. He wants to make us all, give us the tools to get us to the place where we can be happy and safe and, mm. and perpetually going on to better and better things. This was another part of the selfless process. It's pretty good. And so uh, hopefully we could help show you a little bit of the, the, the start of that process and we'd invite you to take a look, dig into it deeper and see what you find. So thanks everyone for hanging out. Jonathan Rose, thanks so much for going thanks, through Curtis. this. Thanks Curtis, been fun. You could say that the stakes for Jesus Christ were relatively high. I mean, failure would lead to the end of the human race on earth. But like that little weak spot on the Death Star, there was a targeted strike Jesus could make to avoid all this impending doom. All that needed to happen was to take on a finite human form and then make that form divine. And how that all happened, move by move, layer by layer, is actually perfectly represented by the story of the patriarchs. But believe it or not, that's not where the layers of meaning end. 
Because the path Jesus laid out, he wasn't just doing this for himself. He was clearing a way for all of us. The way that Jesus united the human to the divine follows the same steps that Jesus can now use to unite himself to us. So in a way, we already do know this whole story because it's the one that we're living right now.